welcome back to another episode of Pollinate. Um, I don't know if you guys will recognize the, our guest today, but uh, he shares my last name. Uh, he's definitely no better looking than me. Uh, in fact, there are people that accuse us of being equally ugly. So my brother Mike, oldest, wisest brother, uh, has been a, a, a great friend and uh, comrade in arms in the fruit business. Uh, he sort of helps bail me out when I get in over my head, which is fairly often. And uh, yeah, anyway, but I don't want to swell his head up here by making him feel too good. But without further ado... Brother Mike, Michael Robert Rash, um, oh, we were a family of nine, and uh, he got to be the oldest, and yeah, so uh, Mike, just tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're doing now, what your farm operation looks like over there, and uh, and then, I mean, yeah, we'll have to talk about his, his a, a little side note about Brother Mike, okay, is that Farming for him is really like a hobby, and hunting is more like the serious work. That's what he's doing right now on his way out to Montana hunting and uh, stopped off here to do a little hunting as well. And, uh, yeah, so fruit farming kind of got in the way of that sometimes, but not always. So tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, there you let all my secrets out. That <laughs> is a vice, definitely the hunting, but I guess it's not a bad vice, Uh Anybody that grows fruit or farms earns their keep. So uh, if you can get away for a little while, and I've got an understanding family, they uh, promote this. I think they want to just get rid of me for a couple of weeks. But anyway, um, we come in. I bought the family farm, the one that our parents started. And uh, it was old standard orchards, trees. And it had a small retail thing uh, based around you pick cherries. So it kind of had a start, at least I had a start getting into this, of commercial fruit growing and a small retail uh, affiliate too. And since then, we've gone to try to build up the retail part of it, figure there's more value there on a direct sell than planting more trees. Um, and by doing that, we've neglected to uh, replant the older varieties and that's been a trade-off because now those varieties don't have the value fresh that a lot of the new commercial varieties do so kind of in that transition there were trade-offs when you you know I made the we my wife and I made the choice to uh, move towards the retail more than put the finances towards replanting to more commercial viable varieties um, we, there's a lot of potential there for growth. Uh, we had name association with the long established uh, cherry direct sell market, but now we've opened for the apple and uh, seasonal, extended the season and gone into a fall market for, based around apples and all the other uh, value added uh, items. So we're slowly building that, but um, I guess one thing I could honestly say is by not being proactive on replanting and not being growing a commercial operation, you can fall by the wayside real easily. Um, it's still supply and demand, this whole Apple thing, and uh, 
you, when you diversify it and you can spread it over more acres, uh, I just see in the future, it's going to be us, the smaller operations that are going to be, especially with older varieties, it's going to be hard. Uh, the bigger operations are going to be the ones that will probably keep marching forward. So, so um, let's talk a little bit about that. Cause you know, from where I sit, uh, the Michigan apple industry and the apple industry in the states, as a in general, has changed dramatically in our lifetimes. I mean, you know, the the size of the orchards has changed a lot. The composition of them, you know, if you look back at, I was looking at an old Michigan Flavor Best uh, poster mm -hmm. that showed all the different varieties that were the major varieties in Michigan. There were like almost twenty varieties. Yeah. I bet now there wouldn't be 10 varieties that would constitute 90% of what people grow. Exactly. And if you look back uh, 15, 20 years ago and more, a lot of the bigger fresh growers operations, they were strictly processing growers at that time. <laughs> so they've made the transition to go to strictly fresh. And uh, it's taken away needs for a lot of those old you know, established varieties that were earmarked then and especially now for processing. So there's still uh, guys are doing okay with the last few years prices on some of the processing and even juice prices. But uh, with our fixed costs keep going up and our kind of our returns have kind of plateaued, um, there's not a lot of margin there. And I think that's been the number one thing I hear from growers West Coast and home the big growers, they're looking at labor efficiencies. They're looking at their bottom line really hard now because our fixed costs, especially harvesting, which is labor, and the chemical costs, uh, cost of raising the fruit keep going up. And uh, the end's got to justify the means. So I think in the future, the guys that are going to stay in it are really looking hard at labor efficiencies, um, mechanization where they can, and just utilizing the labor they have more efficiently. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's remarkable as you look here, having transplanted to Iowa and looking at the corn and bean kind of situation and uh, the progression of that. First of all, in the 80s, there was a big problem. A bunch of growers went out of business. Um, the ones that survived have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Equipment's gotten bigger. Of course, it's a lot less labor intensive, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but the, there again, the prices of that commodity are not getting, they're, they're not going up alongside the cost of producing that commodity. Yeah. Um, apples in the 90s were in the same situation. You know, I think uh, generally perceived that we lost about 30% of all the fruit growers in America in the, in the 1990s for the same reasons, labor costs, everything keep going up. The demand of the bigger supermarkets, you know, the buying power got really strong to where they could command, basically name the price in some ways, or, yeah. or at least cap the, the lid on the price and uh, demands for quality went way up. Um, so yeah, a lot of growers got out of it. Now we see a resurgence and, and there were some good years after that as growers, you know, less, less supply growers went out of business. And then, uh, and now we're back to where we seem to have regained all that production plus some, the difference being like you just said, 
uh, in Michigan, which was traditionally a, a largely processing industry, uh, New York had a, a pretty strong processing mm-hmm. industry as well. So not all your fruit had to be a number one. You could you could grow it for processing, um, and still make some money. Well, that bottom fell out of the processing uh, price for sure. Um, but the big trend is that the growers have shifted into high quality production, you know, where you're getting 90% pack outs and yeah. stuff like that. So 90% of your fruit, instead of 50% before or 60%, now 90% of your fruit is, is number one quality, not a lot in the processing. And, uh, but if the price of that, of that fresh pack is not good, then you're, you're stuck. Right. And that's kind of, uh, the plate we've set for ourselves is, uh, we're so efficient now with yields mm. and we're producing quality fruit and uh but we're planting 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 so um we're we're structured to sell that crop year in year out i think as we speak but what they sell it for is that going to justify our input costs i mean what's what's the bottom line going to be so that's the real scary part that i see right now is moving forward is our efficiencies and our production scale and uh, what the supply chain will take. And uh... yeah, so when when we were younger, we're still fairly young at heart. Oh, big time. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, it, even younger at heart, um, you know, there was a pretty good yield might have been what, 600 bushel yeah, acre? five to five, 600 six, bushel to acre. You yeah. Know. And now out west, uh, you know, with the right sunshine and stuff, they'll do 1,500 bushel the acre pretty common. Exactly. So, so it's almost threefold. Almost threefold. And, uh, and the number of acres has crept back up to where it was previous to uh, losing all those farmers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have more production, and the bigger proportion of that production is high quality. Yep. Um, so, you know, it puts, it puts a lot of pressure on prices. People don't, and, uh, it really does. And, uh, like I said, you know, they'll sell the crop, but what they sell it for, is it going to keep everyone afloat, you know, cause our fixed costs keep going up and up. And, yeah. Uh, and the other cost is of course, the other cost that keeps going up and up is packing costs. So yeah. a commercial grower brings his crop in, in 20 bushel wooden bins by and large into a, a packing plant and they get they get run over these very efficient now computerized graders that are really amazing. Um, that'll check them for color. It'll even check them for internal defects and it'll, it'll weight them, you know, size them by weight, um, very, very accurately. But the cost of that stuff, you know, is it's not a million dollars to set one of these up anymore. It's 20 to $40 million, I think, yeah. uh, to set one of these up. And so every bushel that goes over, um, what I heard, some years ago, well, when we were out in Washington, that uh, they were talking then about twelve dollars a bushel to run stuff over the line, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. I mean, you know, that's if you're if you're selling your stuff for twenty dollars a bushel and you're paying twelve dollars to to run it over a line, uh, it doesn't leave a lot. No, it doesn't. It surely doesn't. And uh, yeah, that's the thing. You see a lot of the operations, the bigger operations, have they're packed their own fruit, and that's where their margin is. Then, but they have to make money. They got to keep packing fruit. So it's the outside smaller growers. You know, they're relying on them bringing their fruit in, but it doesn't leave a lot for those growers, like you say. 
Yeah, so. it's uh, it'll it'll be interesting. I mean, I think one of the things just looking at, you know, compared to let's say, a lot of the corn and bean farmers around here, is that it does seem like fruit farmers have been able to retain family members. Maybe not all of them. Generally, probably not. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it's it's it doesn't. I'm, and that's me looking from the outside. You'd know better. But it does seem like up in Michigan. There are a lot of operations that are continuing, you know, with the next Absolutely. generation. Absolutely, and yeah. uh, you know, I um, really respect them—the ones that can do that. You know, but uh, I guess on my end, with all girls, especially, um, I don't know. Looking forward, maybe I'm a little bit pessimistic there, but I don't know if I would encourage that at this yeah. point because well, it's, you, it's not an easy you, road at all. And uh, yeah, it's not an easy road, and and then. I mean, you said to all girls, but I mean, we also have to think about what kind of girls we got because, I mean, Brother Mike's got a very unmanageable mob of girls. Oh, I that's mean, they're, an they're, they're yes, hellacious yeah. hellions. I mean, that's all you can do is say that. So that's just the case. No, they're spirited. They're high spirited gals. Yes. High spirited kids. And uh, yeah, well, we don't want to swell their heads no, either, but, but they're, they're all right. Yeah. On a good day, yeah, we'll keep okay. them. Yeah. Well, they're, Yep, as they used to say in Arkansas, they're keepers. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the point is a good one. Is you know what you know what do you look to do? You know, in terms of the farm and stuff down the road, and and, and it is hard. I mean, I, I it I really just is because you know after you've spent your whole life farming and you work eighty hundred hour weeks, and then you look at the end of the year sometimes, and you're so heavily leveraged. You know, in uh, you borrow against everything you own to operate, so to speak. It, it takes the fun out of it, and yeah. you know, I know I've been there. I've got good close friends that are there, and they look back now, and uh, a lot of them are successful with a lot of acreage, big operations, but they're heavily leveraged yet. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the good answer. I'm not trying to sound pessimistic, but. Uh, it's a tough. It, it's, it's a, a tough, tough business. Tough business, and yeah. and you know, it's not. It's not as uh, you know. I, there is some insurance for horticultural crops, but it's not like the corn and bean guy. Right. You know, it's it's not that level of protection, and so you know, you're at number one. You're you know, an acre of apples used to cost. Maybe you're talking. Two to five thousand dollars an acre tops, you know, to to put an acre in back with semi dwarf trees at one hundred and fifty to the acre or something like that. Um, now with fully dwarf stock going in at twelve hundred, fifteen hundred trees to the acre, and then you've got trellising and irrigation. You got to have, you know, the out in Washington. The last thing I saw in the Good Fruit Grower was they're talking sixty thousand dollars an acre is what they. Yeah, some costing. of that's above ground costs, you yeah, know. Yeah. So it's staggering. And then you look around and you see the scale that's being replanted. So everybody that's in it are taking a leap of faith any way you cut it. You, you, but you got to, you know. And uh, uh, just like this, I brought Paul some Christmas trees out. They're expanding in that, you know. And right now there's a real uh, sag in the production because of the glut of production years back. So. Maybe it kind of coincides with that, you know, where it's oversupply now and people are planting heavily yet, and they'll be the ones that'll carry the the need and the the supply years to come when when it's needed. I, I don't know that, but uh, 
Well, one of the things uh, that that's also going on at this time that that sort of uh, it it sort of paves the way for larger operations is this club varieties and things like that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of a lot of new apple variety. Well, pretty much every new apple variety that's you know in the days of old. Johnny Appleseed days, a lot of the varieties just sprang up out of cider piles. You know, you press your cider fruit, you throw all the skins and the seeds out there in a big pile and up sprout some trees. And and people would, would find a lot of trees, just wild trees. They'd mm-hmm. say, oh, that's a good apple. Or, you know, we'll just call that a Martha's best. Paula Red. Yeah, yeah Paula Red. Yeah. Yep, yep. I mean, there's there's a ton of them in, in our area Paula yep. Red came from. Um but nowadays, pretty much all of the new varieties, I would say all of them, are bred in different facilities, whether yep. it's University of Minnesota or some of the other universities around the U.S. New Zealand has a big breeding program, Switzerland, France. You know, there's lots of breeding programs. Canada has some. And as soon as they come up with something, they patent it, and then they sell the patent rights. And the newest uh, the tendency right now is that the patent holder, whoever buys that patent, then tries to restrict supply of that new fruit in order to keep the price up. And they yeah. do that by creating what's called a you know a, a club, and they authorize only certain growers to to plant that club, and that really benefits big growers because they don't really want small growers. Uh, but it is it's a, it's a true managed variety that yeah. way, you know. But uh, we are confusing the consumer. Yeah, with too many choices, and uh, so I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, there's only so much self space and so much uh, supermarkets, and the you know the and seller is going to do to accommodate all these. You know, yeah. so it'll be interesting. Well, so talk a little bit because the other thing about that you do is is directly related to what we were just talking about, and that is. Uh, you and a couple other guys have gotten together and put in and created. I, I can remember this going back, oh, Jiminy, 20 years now, where you started working on this vacuum harvester. Right? Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the early renditions yeah, looked like yeah. an octopus. At, uh, it was like Dr. It, so. Seuss met the mad scientist when <laughs> yeah. it started. And I don't know if it's much better, but uh, yeah, so we've uh, looked at the whole commercial end of it and where we've now planting varieties on a true fruiting wall, a vertical plane of production. And we've, we've stayed with this, anticipating the need of labor efficiencies. And I think more so now than ever, that's a necessity. Um, by most any industry mechanizes sooner or later. So our, our big, one of our big harvests or labor costs is harvesting the apples. So we have designed and patented and we have uh, working units on a self-propelled picking platform in a modular vacuum harvest unit that we have attached to these. So the platforms are full season use for, har- for trimming, training, trellising, thinning, anything else that you can take ladders out of the scope of things. And by utilizing our vacuum harvest system, we are showing efficiency and even quality pack out gains on the fruit handling by eliminating the ladders and that extra um, uh, operational handling procedure of 
putting the apples into a picking bag and then putting them in the box. So uh, there's a lot of value to the system. And right now we've got a unit out west that we are uh, putting a mechanical moth, uh, Italian uh, packing company. We are incorporating their uh, bin filler on our platform to get away where we always had an optic sensor on it. So we're just trying to, we're at the final stage of it now, trying to simple it to get it out there to where there's no no more electronics than we need. Hmm. Because the electric eye worked well, but uh, it's like anything else, you're relying on circuit boards and optic sensors and relays and everything out in the weather. And one thing we've learned is anything will work good in a controlled environment, but you get it out in the real world, out in the field with weather and everything else, uh, that's where we're at. So a long answer to a short question. Uh, we've put a lot of years into uh, evolving this, and as the industry stands, like I said before, the bigger growers, what I'm hearing more and more now is where they feel they can make up to get their bottom line back up there is labor efficiencies, and this ties in with that. Because, and this is DBR? Yeah, it's our con DBR conveyors, or what's the? DBR conveyor concepts, and DBR we partnered with Automated Ag out on the West Coast. He's the kind of the main man out there with the self-propelled platform, so we've, we've shrunk our unit down to accommodate uh, modular plug-and-play unit on his platforms, and uh, it's worth checking out because it is. Uh, it'll so, work for most any round firm fruit or vegetable, providing you can reach it. Because it's hands-free, all you're doing is picking and committing the fruit or anything else into the inlet. It takes it under vacuum to a patented decelerator, which decelerate controls and extracts it out onto a distributor, a turntable. And fills the box automatically. So just for anybody that hasn't actually had the experience, the actually quintessential fantastic experience of picking apples, normally you would have a picking basket which hangs on your shoulders and you pick fruit into that. When it's full you're going to have somewhere around 20 to 30 pounds of apples and you have to go down the ladder and over to a, a big wooden box and you put them into that box. And so as a replacement for that, this would allow you to stay at a certain level because you're on a self-propelled platform that would take you along and you'd have people down below picking, people up above picking, and nobody has to go up and down ladders. What's more, you're just picking them into a tube. It's really quite, quite incredible. You should watch it. Um, DBR conveyor concepts. And automated ag. And automated ag. And automated ag. Yep. So... It's worth looking at, and you'd be amazed. At this this guy, he looks scruffy and stuff, but he, he's, he's still got it. He's still it all comes it. down to too much time thinking while you're pruning trees all winter, and you're sitting on a self-propelled pruning tower, and uh, that's where it all started, good, bad, or otherwise. There we go. Because so, I mean, so there's so many facets here. So you guys have, have I mean, you kind of came up the ranks, and the commercial apple business and then got tagged up with this wild woman from Wyoming and now doing retail fruit, but you're also doing something out in Montana. Talk, 
talk oh. a little bit about that. Well, Montana's been kind of a second love for me right along, and I've always kept an eye on the cherry, the fruit growing area out there. It's uh, strictly, it's a kind of a little microclimate uh, along the east shore of Flathead Lake, northwest Montana, that allows for fruit production there. Stone fruit, cherries uh, are the mainstay, some apples. Uh, so anyway, we had taken a leap of faith, bought a small farm there, and have renovated that. And uh, it's the latest blooming and latest fruit production area for cherries in the nation. So it allows a cherry to be uh, picked for that Labor Day market, which is kind of its little niche. Uh, a lot of tourists come through, so it's got a strong retail uh, atmosphere as well. But um, that's what uh, the Montana thing is. Uh, it's got its own set of challenges, but I put some high density apples in out there. And uh, this year we're gonna probably put, I got a, a hoop house going in, mm. high tunnel. Try and bring some cherries in a little bit earlier for the retail side of it. And uh, I don't know, it's a long ways from Michigan to Montana, but uh, we well, try Well, it's a make... road you're traveling anyways, though. Yeah. <laughs> the other yeah. way you could look at it is it's going to reduce the commute time between Michigan well, and Well, that's what we're hoping, but uh, if nothing else, it's uh, it's right on the lake, and uh, so it's a it's, uh, good investment, we hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, so the cherries are a pretty big part of the business back in Michigan for you, the retail yeah. cherry thing. Um, how do you, I mean, has that changed a lot? I, I know there's a lot more people growing cherries now, right? Yeah, yeah. No, there is. And uh, so we're strictly, we do sweet and sour tart cherries, uh, fresh retail and uh, wholesale. And uh, I think it stayed there's been growth right along with it. We've expanded on a lot of the value-added items uh, for the market, the jams, jellies, and then with a full bakery, um, keep growing on that, utilizing the fruit, just like Brother Paul does to a larger scale here. But uh, I think this year was more pronounced. Uh, I think I looked around other retail operations. There's X amount of them are structured just for the cherries, but the apple markets is really strong and uh, the COVID thing has made a lot of people travel less and I think buy more local. So it's kind of helped the retail side of it. And I think everyone coming out, a lot of people are new this year. So I think it, it's got a lot of uh, potential to keep growing on that level. And then uh, it, by direct selling, you have more control over, uh, over your product and your market and actually your your returns so yeah yeah it's a great crop i mean cherries are, are yeah are but there's a reason crop. everybody don't grow them yeah. i tell myself that every year <laughs> about as fickle as they can get but you need the right uh we wouldn't do it without the great lake uh, michigan we're on the downwind predominant wind downwind side of it and that allows it to moderate our temperatures and uh, allows us to raise fruit and that's the same scenario we have with a large body of water in montana so don't have it here and you can show sure no, you tell don't. the difference nope. <laughs> yeah. the most water i see here body of water is like rain like today and it shows up in the creek within an hour yeah yeah indeed it was 70 
almost 80 degrees yesterday when I looked. It was 76 or something. And today the temperature's dropping, dropping, dropping. They're getting snow in northern Iowa. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yep, this is Iowa. So. But I got to re- hats off to you and your family and everybody what you've done here. This is an amazing operation. And uh, it's always yeah. a treat to come out here. And there's something new every time I'm here. So Yeah, I got to keep up with the young crowd. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, I think this is the reason you and I are sitting here is mostly due to the young crowd. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it uh, is today's indeed. world. It is today's world. Yep. yep. Get on board or get the hell off. Yep. Here we are again, doing what Rash Brothers do best, yakking some more. Uh, sort of a follow-up to what we talked about yesterday. Um, so weather report is yep we've gone from the 70s down to the 30s but it's a beautiful sunny day and uh here with me is to share this glorious iowa morning is my brother mike uh, welcome back sir yeah yeah so one thing we didn't touch on yesterday was a little bit about our family and our history and uh i mean you know better than i will because you're two years older than me what uh, <laughs> what what that's all about but i know uh i remember grandpa and he had pigs and apples uh his grandpa i understand also had livestock or his dad had yeah. livestock and apples yeah and there was um, some sheep in the mix and sheep yeah, yeah sheep yeah. in the mix yeah. yeah cousin marie actually gave me a a sign that shows Robert R. Rash's uh, Chester White Hogs. Yep. Yeah. It was an advertisement for him okay. selling Chester White Hogs. Yeah. 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 Well, so think... back in the day. But, uh, of course, our our dad and his whole generation, they had, this was Catholics, Germans, Catholics in the, the big thriving metropolis of Wright, Michigan. Um. But they had uh, lots of kids, and let's see, he had, what, four brothers? Dad had four yep, brothers. four brothers and all. Between the five of them, they had 44 kids. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All so, of them brilliant, dashing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In their yeah. own right, anyway. But, uh, <laughs> no, the, the big families were good because, uh, in our case, it was cheap labor. Yeah. The rash pay scale. Yeah. <laughs> alone. Yeah. You know, we grew up, had to work. We weren't allowed to play sports. So we started out at that 10, 15 cent an hour, and every year you'd get a five cent bump. That's exactly right. And we were doing adult work. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but it, it, all in all, it was good. It taught us responsibility, good work ethics. And uh, I think you need that. Yeah. You, you got to really buckle down if you're going to make a living off the land. And it uh, also, they, Dad, in particular, uh, really promoted, let us have our independence. You know, mm-hmm. we, it allowed us to make a lot of mistakes. but it, And we still make mistakes, but as long as we learn from those mistakes, I think that was a good life lesson. Yeah. Well, for me, it just taught me to be a, a professional mistake maker, which I yeah, thrive yeah. at. Yeah, well, you get better at it <laughs> yeah, at time, yeah. but uh, it don't go away is what I'm saying. I yeah. still make mistakes every day, but I like to think, end of the day, I do learn from them. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, I know, you know, I went away to college. You stayed on the farm, and 
one of the things that I was always impressed with was his putting you and Cousin Joe and others into contact with really top-notch people like Stu Carpenter, yeah, um, yeah. who could kind of show you the ropes and bring... Our mentor, yeah. so to speak. And it was uh, something really unprecedented then. Nobody was doing that. So they hired, like, Stu Carpenter, for example, studied at the University of Guelph, very knowledgeable horticulturist and uh, consultant, well-traveled, went to New Zealand, and that was in the 70s, late, mm, yeah. early 70s, he went over there several times for the fruit end of it. And um, so we had him on as a mentor, and he encouraged us to go to New Zealand, a cousin and I. So that was kind of our... Uh, our uh, throwing us into the realm of high density because mm -hmm. we were strictly uh, semi-dwarf to some degree, mostly standard plantings on the farm with my dad, our dad and his four brothers were at a partnership. So we came back from there with, uh, I'd say they were five to eight years ahead of us in planting trends and uh, it was a whole different world. So we came back young, full of ideas and started to renovate some of the plantings to more of a dwarf you know standard uh, central leader leader tree you know a training system tighter plantings still freestanding trees orchards but uh it all started to uh, bring everything into scope of where we are now and uh so. yeah and 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 it really was remarkable because that sort of coincided that timing with a general trend in the Michigan industry and Washington and stuff as well towards really higher density plantings, uh, more intensive care, um, a mm -hmm. little bit more thoughtful uh, pest control. Um, you know, Stu was a Stu was. A, very almost scientific in his approach too. he was in his approach he yeah. definitely was but uh i still go out in a given year every season with some of his information and utilize it you know Stu carpenter said we had law roams then blind wood he said spray magnesium sulfate on mm -hmm. the magnesium will break that spurs on it and it did <laughs> you know there's just things uh little things that you, you kind of store and you, you still use, you know, so that knowledge is always useful. That's yeah. what I'm getting at. Well, and I think- Even I think, in today's world. Especially in today's world in some ways, being able to, the other thing that I know is that like, uh, you were a big part of the Palmsters and, and you know, that, that group of young farmers that would get together um, in South Haven uh, did this, or yeah, in uh, Hartford rather, did the same thing where, get together with other growers and see what they're mm -hmm. uh what they were doing and you know especially the more innovative ones uh, i think that's a that's something that maybe is less i don't know is that happening strong no there's a strong pompster following yet and you know there's a lot of value of that that people share what they've learned share their mistakes share their gains uh to a degree mm -hmm. and uh it's just like the value of going to some of these meetings. Sometimes you get more out of just networking with the people there than the actual meeting, you know? So there's information out there. There's a lot of astute growers, astute people in agriculture. They got to wear a lot of hats. Yeah, they do. Although not as many hats, you know, I, I, one of the things that strikes me in, in thinking back over our history going back, say, four generations or so, is this move away from... 
you know, it's a narrowing of, of your agricultural focus. Um, whereas before, maybe there were sheep, uh, who knows, cattle, yeah. pigs, apples, peaches, plums. You know, when we grew up, there were, there were prune plums, Italian prune plums, pears, yeah. peaches. You know, it was pretty rare orchard that I knew of anyways. You'd know better than I would. But, you know, not a lot of people just growing apples. Right. Whereas and now it's really common that you're, you know, there's a lot of the guys up there on the ridge in Michigan just grow apples or maybe they, they grow they apples do. in one other crop. Yep. And, uh, you know, back then the diversification was all other fruits and other commodities. Mm-hmm. Now it's apples, but it's over different locations yeah. or marketing through different uh, outlets. Channels, yeah. So that's kind of the, I think, the where the diversification kind of trended to. You know, like where we grew up, Paul and I, they called it Fruit Ridge, Peach Ridge. Well, Peach Ridge was based on the old standard 35, 40 foot square plantings. They would put a peach tree in between them. And they would utilize that ground, spray them with the apples. And the peach trees didn't have a lot of life to them, you know, maybe 10 years or so. And they would be out by then. The apple trees were coming in. So, yeah, they had it all, all told, they had a lot of unique, uh, really solid ways to, uh, to diversify and still manage everything. You know. Of course, the trends in marketing were different too, and you know, yeah. there, there's not a lot of reward for a larger commercial scale guy to not be real specialized. You know, you're seem to me like you know, if you're going to grow apples, you want to be growing, you want top yields, like we talked about before. You yeah. know, there's just not a lot of margins there, so yeah. you better by God be top of your game in terms of yield and quality uh, if you're going to make it in this. Oh, in I have more so today than ever. In, yeah. Uh, and if you're growing asparagus and peaches and apples and sheep yeah. and whatever, you know, it's hard to be, as we prove every day, it's hard to be good when you're diverse. I'm a living proof of that every day. And I, I keep looking back and I'm trying to do too much and I'm not doing the right job with any of it, you know, because yeah. it, it's a, get in that hole real easy. Yeah, you know? but it's hard when you switch to marketing like we do, direct-to-consumer, retail farm marketing, that people don't want to just have apples, you know. I mean, and, and we're constantly diversifying because we want to fill out the season. You know, we yeah. want people here in in April as well as in September. It's easy to get people out to an apple orchard in September and October. Right. But it's dang hard to just sell them apples in February or April, you right. know. Right, Especially if the apples are getting soft. You know, you, you, you want something. And people come out. It's not just for the apples. Let's be right. honest. They come but out. Whatever you do for, sell them, you want them back. Yeah, you want them back, and you want them back often. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. Uh, that's one of our principal challenges here is to break this thing where people think about, I mean, it, it's been striking to me coming into this retail orcharding kind of uh, without any experience at it, to see the number of people that say, oh, I come out every year, one time. You know, we come out every year. We yeah. come out every year, one time. And that's that really doesn't pay the bills very well. No, but there's something to that. What I've gathered over the years is that the succession of your small fruits kind of go strawberries, cherries, asparagus, you know, strawberries, asparagus, cherries, blueberries, peaches, apples. And people come out for that 
a lot of time slot in their mind, and then they're ready to go into the next mm. thing. Mm. You know, especially if they want to buy it fresh on the farm retail or you pick. Pretty much, there's offerings in the area or within reason to you know travel and do that. So I think that's kind of why we get the same thing where people come out every year, but they only come out once. Yeah, and so unless it's a long season, then they might come out again. Or, but usually stuff is just kind of stacked right up. Blueberries are coming in earlier bred varieties every time. Yeah, and and even the help tends to transition to that. You know, I have to bring a lot of cherries are a very hand labor intensive crop, so I have to bring a lot of help into harvest. Well, I might pull them from some blueberry guys that they're there early, but as soon as they need them, they got to go. And every year it's shorter and shorter time frame I got that help. So there's always something, uh, a curveball every year that you got to kind of know the pitch and (laughs) kind of swing with it. Yeah. And that is one of the problems with uh, the lack of diversity. You know, the, 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 the one thing for, I mean, not, I don't think very many people could have foreseen or diversified enough to, to deal completely with COVID. But by and large, I mean, we had a frost May the 9th this year, the exactly one day before our official frost-free date. Uh, which really took a toll on strawberries. It took a toll on some apples. Um, But we survived with some strawberries. We survived with some apples, and the combination of the two is is not a bad year for us. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we wouldn't have had the strawberries, um, the apple season was reasonably good, but our crop was short. Um, So I think diversification for an operation that sells direct to the public is, is... essential unless you know i mean i know some really great operations that that's all they do is apples mm-hmm. and that's and and that's all they want to do that's you know they just want to be open from the middle of august to the end of october and and call it a day and that's yeah. that's fine um it's hard to bring the next generation in when you're limited in scope that way because you know you're putting a lot of eggs in that one basket right no and they've got ideas and yeah you know, you're living proof here. You've got yeah. Yeah. two on board. You're yeah, great hair and Jacob, to prove it. and uh, they've got great ideas and that energy to, you know, tackle it. And yeah, you can't discourage that because I agree. Uh, the better operations I see that are more solvent are the very diverse ones. And you can retain help longer that way. You know, because it's seasonal business, you get seasonal help in a turnaround, a lot of turnaround. So, yeah, you're only as good as the people around you sometimes. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, I think. Well, that- we'd like to thank our grandpa Rob Rash would be proud of us because one thing, last note to take home, uh, he always, everywhere he went, and I still get people. That'll say, well, we always remember your grandpa when we were just little toddlers. He would come into the store. He'd come in for parts. Always had a bag of apples. <laughs> and I, grandma, I remember grandpa distinctly saying, well, yeah, you got to give apples away. Because even if you give them away, you're moving product. <laughs> yeah. So 
And he would follow that up with a bet your boots. And you bet your boots. Hit yeah. the ground running. You dang so right. You, you dang, dang right. right. <laughs> bet your boots. And yeah, we yeah. could go on and on, but yeah. uh, we probably yeah, we bored should. your audience enough. And yeah, those two people that watch this thing, they're probably already yeah, asleep. They probably yeah. got on to better things, but <laughs> I guess we will too. Yeah, absolutely we will. Yep. But well, great. Great having you here, Mike, and uh, look well, forward for to having me. Yeah, you know. and uh, shout out to your familia back there. Uh, I mean, I don't know about Cammy, but the the other two are all right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're thinking there's hope for that one yet. I don't know. She's got a touch of the devil in her. I'm afraid. Yes, yeah, she does. <laughs> but that should uh, keep her keep her afloat. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's gonna mess with that one. Nope. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for everybody for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, again, sing out if you did. Sing out if you didn't. What the hell? We'll, we'll listen to your complaints uh, as long as they're not too ornery. Uh, let us know if you got anything else you think we should be covering. All the best.